Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nixetner Geology Podcast, episode 53, Karen Siglok. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. The podcast continues. This is an audio-only podcast series. And today, I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. Um... I'm kind of following up on what I promised from the last episode, the most recent episode, episode 52. We were talking about the insular superterrain, if you recall. And so I, I, by the end of that, I, I promised that I would do an episode on Karin Siglok and uh, Mitch Mahalanik, lower mantle tomography, And that's coming right at you, right into your ear holes. And uh, hope that it can work for you, even though we don't have any visuals to work with, of course. I'll do my best to describe what I think I know about that situation. But the other thing I'm doing is kind of dusting off those ideas for myself personally as I get ready for this coming weekend. You know that I've been doing these live streams on exotic terrains, and this coming weekend is Baja, B.C. And we've really been building since early September with the video live streams on my YouTube channel. We've been building towards this weekend. So it's kind of a big moment uh, in the series, and I'm just starting to think seriously about what I want to do this Friday with an episode called Plutons, and this coming Sunday, I'm recording this in early December, by the way, This uh, it's December 1st, this coming Sunday, a live stream on Baja BC. So I'm starting, as I compile all the notes I've had over the years, and email correspondence, etc., starting to realize I could do a whole live stream series on Baja BC. There's no shortage. And it's good stuff, and it's exciting stuff. <clears throat> so I, I almost need to just kind of synthesize things down or compress things down to just two live streams, basically. And that quickly gets us into some concepts that involve Karen Siglok. So I'm letting you know then that, that I'm, I'm following up on what we did last time, and I'm also just kind of getting my brain right, really, in real time, talking to you uh, so that I can uh, push ahead for the upcoming live sessions. And I think some of you have been joining us with the live sessions, and that's great. So um, let's. the goal then is to, to do this verbally without aid, without visuals, and perhaps without a whole lot of background on your end. And can I do it in 30 minutes? Oh, I'll try. Here we go. Um, for a long, long time, my whole teaching career, I've been teaching that the oceanic Farallon plate was huge and was subducting eastwardly from 180 million years ago until today. And that model is not mine. That's, that's a model that I learned. That's a tectonic model of eastward subducting Farallon plate. And this all kind of was put out there as a model 
by Warren Hamilton and Bill Dickinson and Gary Ernst, a bunch of other folks who were primarily based in California, I think, and their focal point was California, known as the California Triad. So the, the, the sexiest part of it is the Sierra Nevada mountains in eastern California that are full of these plutonic rocks, these granitic rocks. You know Yosemite, you know places like that. <coughs> John Muir Trail and Kings Canyon and Sequoia and Donner Pass and Lake Tahoe, that, that's all the Sierra Nevada granite, quote-unquote. But that's part of this triad. So closer to the coast, uh, west coast of California is the subduction complex or the accretionary wedge, something known as the Franciscan complex. Uh, so think the hills around San Francisco or Los Angeles. And then I'm sure that you know about California's Great Valley, this, this dominant, beautiful, flat, rich in agriculture, uh, San Joaquin Valley, Sacramento Valley, the whole thing called the Great Valley in Central uh, California. All you, need to, all you need to do is look at some sort of image on Google Earth of the state of California, and you'll see that you'll see the triad. You'll see the three things. Modest mountain range at the West Coast, huge Central Valley, flat, and then big Sierra Nevada range in the east. <coughs> Excuse me. So, for the last 50 years, the way to teach West Coast geology is to involve the California triad, uh, saying that this eastward subduction, big Farallon plate, was generating magmas that fed uh, the Sierras, and that's why we have all those big blobs of granite and when the system was active, there was actually volcanic activity in the Sierras. The volcanoes are gone because there's been more recent uplift, and the magmas are no longer being created because we no longer have the Farallon Plate subducting eastward beneath California. We now have a transform plate boundary, the San Andreas Fault, that's shifting um, crust north. But it's the... California triad, and it's the eastward subduction of the Farallon Plate, this huge ocean plate that's been subducting for the last 180 million years, ever since Pangaea started to split apart, ever since North America started moving west and colliding with this eastward-moving Farallon Plate. That is the idea that's under attack, that's, that, that this revolution is, is taking place. And if that sounds dramatic, I guess it is. Um, Although, you know, most geologists are busy in their own little worlds and they're not really paying attention. So it doesn't feel like this has been a major change in thought. What am I talking about? I'm talking about an old idea, Warren Hamilton, Bill Dickinson, others creating this model that basically said 50 years ago, oh my God, we got this new thing called plate tectonics. Oh my God, we've got the Andes Mountains in South America. Oh my God, we've got a big Nazca plate subducting beneath the west coast of South America. Hey, we got the same thing up here in North America. Basically take the simple, current, eastward subducting story in South America and bring it on up here to California. And it worked for 50 years. But 
there were some early rebels to the idea, some early critics of the idea, most famously a guy named Eldridge Moores, who recently passed away. Um, but he was seeing some things in detail with the geology of California, and then others were seeing uh, problems with that simple eastward subduction of the Farallon Plate up in B.C., up here in Washington, Oregon, down in Mexico. But, you know, the revolution has not been a, a full-scale full revolution. It's just been little, you know, talks here and there saying, yeah, I think we got it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think we got some issues. I think we got some small things that maybe don't add up, don't quite fit with this simple eastward subduction model. Okay. Well, I could get into the folks who were kind of speaking up in addition to Eldridge Moores, but I won't. We'll just cut to the um, main menu for today, which is Karen Siglok is from Germany. She teaches at the University of Oxford in England today. She was not trained in geology. She did not get her undergraduate degree or even her master's degree in geology. She was in engineering. And as recently as 20 years ago was in cell phone technology and she was working at Bell Labs in New Jersey and and she was using all sorts of engineering and physics to solve problems with the cell phone industry. But she had kind of a change of heart and kind of asked herself, do I really want to spend the rest of my life working with cell phone technology? And so I got, got some encouragement from some co-workers, et cetera, as I understand it, and decided that she wanted to plunge deeply into the world of geology. And there's just a few people that have this kind of brain power who can just kind of decide she wants to get a PhD in geology without having a whole lot of background. But She's one of those rare people. So she did a PhD, geophysics, by looking in the lower mantle and coming up with some new techniques which I barely understand, but I want to share her results with you, even though I don't understand the, the process involved. Um, there's something called the U.S. Array. It's, a, it's an array of uh, geodetic instruments or geophysical instruments. I don't even know how to describe the instruments. That's how out of it I am. But out here in the Pacific Northwest, this U.S. array was collecting a bunch of data where you send signals down into the earth, in through the crust, into the mantle, and you bounce these waves of energy off of different things down there, and you create essentially a, a CAT scan of what's going on down below. But it was exciting new data that had not been collected before. So as I understand it, all this data is just sitting there. And Karen, for her PhD in geology, decided, I'm going to take all this data, this new exciting data from the U.S. array in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm going to work with it. And then I'm going to find some other data that's a little bit farther afield. And the upshot of her work is tremendously exciting to me because I've really ignored details of the mantle because I didn't understand it. And if there's a scientific paper comes out about geophysics in the mantle, I, I don't even look at it. 
I don't know how to read that stuff. But because Karin's work uh, impacted many of the major questions that we have here in the Pacific Northwest, I got some help reading some of it, and she writes in a beautiful way. And her illustrations are 3D instead of 2D as far as kind of tomography is concerned. So even a dum-dum like I, can, uh, like me, can, can look at some of those images and see what she's talking about. So what is she talking about? If you go into the lower mantle of this planet, you ready? This is the big moment. There are parts of old ocean floor that are hanging down there. Slab walls or slab curtains, that's the phrase of the day. So instead of ocean floor being sent down a subduction zone and being, quote-unquote, destroyed or replenished back into the asthenosphere or the mantle, as is usually taught, that's how I've taught it forever, apparently that's a myth, that when you subduct ocean floor, maybe it's ocean floor that's more than 100 million years old, it doesn't go away. It doesn't change state and go back into the mantle. It doesn't melt and become magma. Instead, it, re it remains a rigid slab of ocean floor, and it continues to sink into the upper mantle. And then if you're patient, into the lower mantle. So she has been finding these crazy slabs, these hanging vertical slabs. And more specifically, instead of just perfectly vertical like walls of old ocean floor in the lower mantle, Karen Siglok, and this is more, we're beyond her PhD now. She's, she's folded this into her active research group in Oxford. She's kind of gotten better re resolution on these slab walls or slab curtains and realized that they're, they're kind of folded. Uh, can you picture ribbon candy? My grandma and her friends, I used to go to their house during holiday time, and they'd have these dishes of hard candy in the coffee table, and some of it would be ribbon candy. That's the best image I have for you. Uh, so can you picture, uh, what's the depth? Between 1,000 and 2,000 kilometers below the surface of the earth in the lower mantle, a vertical wall of old ocean floor, but the ocean floor is not perfectly uh, flat anymore. As the ocean floor slab, this is a challenge now, man. I'm trying my words. As you take this, mm, I'm trying to think of a quick analogy that would work. I'm, I'm holding a piece of paper right now. I'm holding a piece of paper over this this desk, and I'm holding the piece of paper vertical. I'm looking at it right now, vertically, okay? Uh, but instead of this piece of paper being truly piece of paper-like, I want it to be malleable. So when I lower, I'm doing it right now, when I lower this vertical piece of paper onto the desktop and I continue to lower it, it starts to bend, of course. But can you have the state of the piece of paper be a little bit more 
malleable or flexible or soft than this piece of paper is. And can you imagine as I continue to lower the piece of paper onto the desk, it starts to fold like ribbon candy. And it folds back and forth and back and forth. It makes the ribbon candy look. I'm still sinking this thing, this piece of paper, this vertical slab onto the desk top here. Uh, but I continue to lower it and it continues to kind of fold back and forth. Kind of like a curtain, like a, like a, uh, yeah, that's the best I can do. So what's this got to do with uh, the exotic terrains of the Pacific Northwest? What does this have to do with eastward subduction versus westward subduction? What does this have to do with the insular super terrain that we finished with last time? All right, well, let me cut to the chase of this. And I tried to do it a little bit last time. She not only has found these ribbon candy ocean slabs in the lower mantle, she's now been able to figure out how they connect to the Earth's surface at different points in the past. Let me try that again a little bit more descriptively. Instead of the terrains approaching the west coast of North America and being added to the west coast of North America using a moving Farallon plate, as we started with this episode, she now has evidence with timing, a little bit of math, a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of physics, a little bit of reconstructing ocean basins, etc. She's been able to realize that by locating the position of the ribbon candy at different places in the lower mantle and going back in time, she has a convincing case that she knows where the Pacific Ocean floor was at different times off the west coast of North America in the last 200 million years. And because of the geometry of where these ocean slabs are being found today in the lower mantle, she makes a convincing case that instead of a simple Farallon plate diving to the east beneath North America, there had to be a significant chapter of the North American Cordilleran system being developed with a westward diving ocean plate. Okay, that's not going to sit well with you. I'm not even sure it sat well with me, but let me keep trying with that theme. That, that's really what I'm trying to do here with you uh, in the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, let me try it again just with a couple of headlines, and then I'll try to flesh out the ideas. You have all the ingredients now to put this together, but... The challenge is for me to continue to try to find the right words to make it work for you. Maybe you already see it. Maybe you've already seen the live stream. I was happy with that live stream. It, it took a while to get, get into it. I was in the backyard. I had a little bit of buffering issues. This was late October. I can't remember the episode, but it, I suppose if you just uh, go to YouTube and type in Karin Siglock, S-I-G-L-O-C-H, I suppose you'll find that Nick from home live stream pretty easily. There can't be that much on Karin. In fact, I only found one Karin uh, 
talk that's just kind of like a 20-minute talk on YouTube. Otherwise, she really doesn't exist in video form. Okay, let's try it again. Mm-hmm. What's the old idea? Ocean plate called the Farallon Plate, huge plate with a bunch of exotic terrains on it somehow. And here comes the Farallon Plate moving east and subducting eastward beneath the west coast of North America over the last 180 million years. And you create California's geology by doing that. You add a bunch of terrains by bringing that Farallon Plate in and subducting it eastwardly. Karin and her close collaborator, Mitch Mahalanik. Now, Mitch is a British Columbia geologist. He's spent, he must be older than I am, he spent more than 30 years uh, making geologic maps of all the various exotic terrains in British Columbia, in Yukon, even up in Alaska, maybe down in northern Washington, not sure. So he has boots on the ground. He has all this, this kind of quote-unquote real-world experience from the world of old-school geology. And he's the one that sought out to collaborate with Karin. So he kind of found her because he, he was kind of, as I understand it, and I got emails from both Karin and Mitch, which I included in that live stream to kind of flesh things out a little bit personally. But as Mitch told me by email, he, he was really needing something, another technique to kind of, he was kind of at a dead end. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but he'd done what he could with the, the mapping of these terrains, Quinellia, Stachinia. I mean, you've been listening to these audio uh, podcast episodes, right? I probably mentioned him before, the string bean getting folded, Cash Creek, uh, the intermontane, so I'm basically talking about the intermontane and the insular superterrains. A lot of that is Mitch Mahalanick's work from the British Columbia uh, Geological Survey or something like that. So it's Karn and Mitch together that are teaming up to say it can't just be an eastward subducting ocean plate. And the evidence that we have is the positioning, the depth, uh, the timing of these deep ocean slab walls. I'll just call them slab walls from now on. Okay, now that you know what I'm talking about, that's the ribbon candy. And so let me be a little bit more precise now in how I describe the, the walls. Beneath North America today, Karn and Mitch have two slab walls. A monster slab wall that's the star of the show that is underneath today's east coast of North America. Go right down the east coast of Canada, go right underneath New York City, go down to the Caribbean. And if you go down into the lower mantle, I mean, you got to squint now, right? We're way beneath North America's continent. We're beneath the crust. We're beneath the upper mantle, for goodness sake. We're in the lower frickin' mantle. So if you really use your x-ray vision and go all the way down to the lower mantle, Here's this huge slab curtain discovered by Karin that's beneath the east coast of North America. And it's just sitting there. It's not gradually draping up towards the surface to the west, as you would expect. Because, again, if it was an eastward subducting Farallon plate for 200 million years, wouldn't you have kind of a diagonal 
slanting. I mean, let's just say that you know that the ocean floor is not being destroyed, that it's down there in the lower mantle. Wouldn't you have it kind of being draped uh, underneath North America from shallow levels in the west to deeper levels in the east? Instead, this, this east coast slab curtain, which is the main event, is detached. It's vertical. It's not connected to the surface at all. That's slab curtain number one, or slab wall number one. The second one, they called the Cascade Route. It's further west. It's underneath the Pacific Northwest today. Uh, the lower mantle portion of it is beneath Idaho. So in the live stream, I called it the Idaho slab. That's just kind of my, my phrase. But in that case, the Idaho slab in the lower mantle is connected to today's Juan de Fuca plate, which is still an ocean plate that's coming at North America, diving beneath North America, eastward subduction. So, so with the Idaho slab, which is in the lower mantle, you can follow it up to shallow depths. You can connect it to an actual eastward subducting ocean plate today. So that one makes sense. And f up until Karin's work, everybody just called that. They knew about uh, the, that, that slab. They just kind of called that the Farallon slab and just figured that was the last 180 million years. Well, the excitement is, what do you do with this huge, much bigger, much longer East Coast slab? What is that? Karin says, that's ocean crust that was subducting westward underneath the insular superterrain. I'll say it again. There's new evidence for a significant chapter of subduction off the coast of Washington, Oregon, Northern California, etc. Quite a ways out into the ocean, I might add. But there's evidence that that ocean crust was actually connected to North America. And as North America was moving west, the ocean crust offshore of North America was subducting westward beneath some sort of island arc out in the Pacific. So I can't remember which episode. Maybe it's just the last two episodes now that I think about it. I was talking about potatoes, baked potatoes, wasn't I? I was kind of pleased with myself, actually. I think it was the intermontane story. I can't remember. I guess I'm pleased with myself too often. But I had the analogy that uh, you're going to have a baked potato splatter on your windshield of your car as you're driving through some hot summer night. And that baked potato is splattering on your windshield. That's accretion of the baked potato onto your windshield. Your windshield is the western edge of North America. Western, western, western North America is the car. You're moving west. You're driving west. Here comes this baked potato. The question is, was the baked potato being thrown at your windshield to accrete? Or was the baked potato hanging on a string in the hot summer night, hovering above the road, and you speed 60 miles an hour into that 
stationary baked potato. You're still going to accrete the potato, but it's not that the potato was coming at your car. It was that you drove into the potato. That's the upshot of this work by Karin Siglok and Mitch Mahalanik. By working with the geometry of the East Coast lower mantle ocean slab, they make a compelling case that the insular superterrain was not moving. It was fixed. And their, their, their logic there, backed up by a bunch of math and physics, is that once you have a subduction zone established and you have, let's say, westward subduction into an ocean trench and making ocean island arcs out in the ocean, you are sending those pieces of paper. Remember our ribbon candy, our flexible pieces of paper that are kind of being lowered uh, and folded in the lower mantle? They kind of establish that once you get that established, once you get that rolling, once you get that trench set up and you get that westward subduction going, that's kind of a fixed thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like a hot spot in the sense that it's, it's so deep. That system is much deeper than a tectonic plate that once you get it set up, it's not going to drift around a whole lot. And there's a bunch of other reasons, including the show this coming Friday, where I need to look carefully at the position of these major plutons and try to explain all these plutons, these, these big blobs of magma coming to the surface in the western North American continent. There's some radical new thoughts about how to explain those plutons. It's not just a bunch of magma coming up from eastward subduction. It's a bunch of magmas somehow being generated by westward subduction. And I can't hold it. There's a guy named Bob Hildebrand, H-I-L-D-E-B-R-A-N-D, Robert S. Hildebrand. If you Google him, Robert Hildebrand, maybe type in geology, you'll get to, I think he has just a robertshildebrand.com. Pretty easy to find a whole page of his publications. He's got links to all sorts of stuff. And he makes the most beautiful maps. I don't know much about Bob. I, I emailed him once. He said, can I call you? It's much easier just to talk to you than to type this all out. So he just talked at me for about an hour. It was very generous of, his, of him to spend an hour talking to me, but it wasn't much of a conversation. So it was just kind of a firehose kind of a thing, but whatever. Um, I'm still trying to learn about him and is he truly an outsider and, and how much of his work is valuable versus not and who says it's valuable and who says it's not. But Hildebrand and others have this ribbon continent, the insular essentially, out there fixed and they have North America plowing into insular and using the position of the Plutons and Hildebrand has a concept called um, slab failure or slab breakoff. I don't think I can do it. I can't really explain it right now. I need two more days worth of reading. But the basic idea is the main event, which I know that I've talked with you about here in the audio form, is 100 million years ago. 100 million years ago is when we have North America plow into this stationary pedestrian deer in headlights 
Like, oh my God, what's coming at me? Right through the intersection. Not a good scene. That... So you plowed into the stationary deer and headlights pe- uh, pedestrian 100 million years ago, and Hildebrand is saying that a bunch of the magmas that are generated post-collision, post-slamming into the pedestrian, are you with me, is some sort of failure of the last gasp of the ocean floor that's being caught in that collision. You're like, huh? I agree. I'm kind of like, huh, too. But he's got it all laid out. I just need to figure out what he's saying. But I'm I'm in that zone right now, and I'll have some things figured out before Friday's show on the Plutons and Sunday's show on Baja BC. And I'm starting to realize, am I repeating myself already? I'm starting to realize that there's way too much to fit into this weekend. So it's almost a little sampler, a little Whitman sampler of all this Baja BC stuff and major translation moment, uh, movements and major Rubia ribbon continent stuff from Hildebrand. And Stephen Johnston I know nothing about, but he's in the middle of all this. So if nothing else, you're getting the sense that there's some significant work being done in the last 15 years that's coming from new workers that really is not a united, cohesive movement yet. I'm trying to think of it like a political analogy, but I don't really follow politics, so I don't know, some sort of political coup. But, you know, it's just little factions of of groups that are just kind of making noise every once in a while. But it seems like there's enough in the air here. There's enough anti-simple Farallon eastward subduction story. There's enough here that I I think there's going to be a lasting change in the way we view the West. And it's not a sad story. It's an exciting story. It's, 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 you know, these these models, uh, nobody said the models were perfect. And I think Eldridge Moores, back 50 years ago, was was uh, the first to say, look, this, this, this model of the California triad and simple Farallon eastward subduction was a, went from model to dogma way faster than it should have. And uh, this is really the first time since the thing was first presented 50 years ago that people are like, wait a minute, there's too much here to just be explained by that simple story. And I don't know, you're maybe not in geology listening to this, you're just kind of a fan in general, and and then you're like, well, who gives a shit, man? You know, who cares? This doesn't matter. These people are all worked up, and they're making enemies, and it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, it's, there's different ways to address that, I guess. I kind of agree with you at one level. This is not a matter of life and death. It is a matter, however, of moving forward with the scientific process, with following exciting research, with appreciating how major shifts in our understanding can develop after culminating years of work, 
it's an interesting lesson in how people who are considered outsiders can have enough momentum and enough good work to eventually show everybody that the old ideas were wrong. That's kind of fun. And I may be following some leads here that are going to fizzle out. And for all I know, the old eastward Farallon plate subduction story will still be taught in college classrooms uh, 50 years from now. But I actually don't think it. I, don't, I actually don't think so. As soon as I say that, Daddy's excited just here at the end. I really don't think so. I think there's enough here to say that, you know, I don't know. I'm hoping to teach another 20 years. I'm almost 60, but I can't imagine doing anything else. At the very least, I imagine just continuing to make programs, whatever that means, as the technology continues to advance. Hell, I never dreamed I'd be making live broadcasts from my backyard or my front porch. So, of course, I can't imagine what I might be doing five or ten years from now with technology. But I, I honestly enjoy learning these new things and delivering it in my own style. And that's what I'm doing right now here with you, of course. But uh, it's deeply satisfying. And it's really the only thing I can offer. Um, and I just try to follow the leads. And in this case, the leads are provocative and not particularly over our heads, as it appears at first glance when you read a geophysics paper. Well, did we do it? Did we, did we make progress there? Uh, if nothing else, maybe I got you curious enough to find some Karin Siglock papers or Bob Hildebrand papers or maybe just tuning in <laughs> to the uh, Nick from Home live stream series this weekend. We're almost done with the series. There's just four shows left. But, of course, there's way more material to deal with than just four more shows. Well, dear listener, that was a good effort this morning from me. I gave you the best I could. It's early on a Tuesday morning, and it's time for me to hit the woodshed here and really start thinking seriously about Plutons and Baja B.C., coming this weekend. Thank you for listening to this audio episode of the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast. I love you, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>